church. And therefore, I've never set, I haven't set a foot in a mall in like three months, right? Um, I don't listen, I mean, there's no, I don't really listen to Christmas music around me, right? Because those things come out, you know, in the streets and stuff. And I don't, I don't, I haven't listened to any Christmas songs. Um, and because I'm so busy, I haven't even watched any Hallmark Christmas movies, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's like I don't feel, it's very Christmassy to me. And I think, if you're honest, I think you agree with me. This season doesn't feel like a very much Christmas season to you. And I think, you know, as, as much as I and all of us enjoy the Christmas season type of activities, and those are good things, right? The beauty of lights and present giving and cheesy Hallmark movies are good things. If we need those things to define what Christmas season is for us, then we're really no different from the world, right? I think the world defines Christmas through those events, through those songs. But for a Christian, Christmas is, and what we're going to talk about today, Christmas is more than these you know, you know, external things that the world tells us. Christmas is the very reason for history, and that's what we're going to talk about today. In Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God himself, who is outside of time and space, enter into his own creation, right, as flesh, to redeem God's people. And to Paul, that is the central narrative of God. The reason for history, the reason for humanity, is for God to, God to show forth his mercy and grace through the work of Christ. So Christmas season for us, it's not just a time of, you know, human celebration. But we remember the very reason for history. And the reason why I want to talk about this in today's verses is because I think for a lot of us, we don't have a very Christ-centered understanding of Christmas. Let's be honest, we don't. To us... Jesus and Christmas is only relegated to, you know, baby Jesus lying on a manger, like surrounded by donkeys and pigs and cows or whatever, right? Like, and then we, that's, that's the only thing we remember. How do we know? Every Christmas pageant is all, always about Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus, right? Just, we just remember Jesus being born on a manger. In our minds, that's what Christmas means. That is an important event, right? the son of God, the God who created all things, being born in flesh, being born in poverty in a manger, that is very important, right? Because it testifies to the humility and the servanthood of Jesus Christ. And I'm not taking anything away from that event because that event is recorded in the, in the Gospels, so it is important for us to consider, and that's true. But Christmas... The incarnation of Jesus Christ is more than about baby Jesus on a manger. It is the very reason for history. And I hope and I pray God will expand our understanding this morning so that we will have a more deep, comprehensive understanding of Christmas. 
Okie dokie. So, a little bit of warning. Today is going to be kind of theological. And I know you want, you know, like uplifting things. And I know you want things to make sense. But today is going to be a little bit more challenging things. So, I ask you to like take notes and keep, keep careful attention to what we have to say. Right? So, just bear with me today. Let's go. In verse 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. What this verse means is, in the perfect time that God has designed, he has sent forth Jesus Christ to the world. The implication of this verse is this. Human history, right, it's not a series of random events. Human history, human history is God's, un, human history is the unfolding of God's plan. Unbelievers think history is just random courses of events. Christians believe that God has a narrative. God planned a narrative, right? God had his own plan. And, to, and in order to execute his plan, right, he, he allowed human history to unfold. So what we are living under right now, we are living under God's plan, God's narrative plan. Another way to think about it is, they say every grid of existence, there's information flowing. Every grid of existence, every molecular, in every molecular level of existence, not in, only in this world, but in space, galaxy, information is flowing everywhere. And that's true. Who wrote the code for the existence who wrote the code for that information that is a fabric of existence? It is God himself who wrote it. An easier understanding, of, I guess, is my son doesn't play a lot of, I mean, he plays a lot of video games, but he doesn't play a lot of console video games, right? And I bought him an Xbox like a few years ago, and one of the first games that I bought him was The Legend of Zelda, right? Man, when I, like, I don't play it, but I was just enamored, taken away by the, beauty of that world, right? When I was in college, I played The Legend of Zeta, Zelda, and it's like, you know, those like primitive video games, like, duh, 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 right, right? No, my son's version of Zelda is in an expansive, colorful world of so much beauty and possibility. And I was taken away by it. But then I remember, who designed all the codes to make that world possible? It is some person, some software designer out there somewhere who's responsible for every brick of that world. That is, a, that is anaglis, anaglis? similar to our existence. God has a narrative. He wrote the codes to make that narrative come true. We are living in God's designed world. 
where he controls every event, every time and space he controls. Once again, this is different from the mind of an unbeliever who say there is no meaning, who say everything flows, as, it's just everything is an accident. The Big Bang is an accident. The fact that we're human beings, evolutionary process is random. And everything is just random and accidental. There's no meaning to things. Even though they say there's no meaning to things, Unbelievers cannot still, cannot, even though they may say they don't believe in objective truth, even though they don't say that life, even though they say life is meaningless, they can't really live out a meaningless life. They need some form of meaning. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist writer, he says life is meaningless. But he says even though life is meaningless, Human beings have to find their own meaning to life to make this life livable. He's saying, life is meaningless, but to live this life, you have to construct your own meaning. Because he knew living a meaningless life is impossible in this world. Do you understand? Unbelievers like Richard Dawkins, right? He, he is the evolutionary biologist who believes in random variable, like, you know, survival of the fittest, random variables of evolution. He tells his students, students, look, when you observe the human cell, the human cell looks completely designed. But students, you must remember, there is no meaning, there is no design. Even though the cells that you may see look designed and it's meaningful, you need to remind yourself that it isn't meaningful, it is just random. Richard Dawkins must tell his students to don't believe what you see. What you see is design and meaning, but in actuality it isn't. Unbelievers say there is no meaning to life. And yet, you know, and, and yet their lives, they live life as if life is meaningful. This goes to show there is an underlying yearning for meaning in our souls. And the reason why there is that yearning in our souls is because somewhere in our conscience, we know that this existence is created for some sort of meaning. Right? And that meaning is determined by God. Everything that happens to us in human history, everything that is happening to you right now, Every bit of it is designed and approved and controlled by God. COVID-19, yep. Your unemployment, yes. Your struggles, yes. Every bit of it, every bit of it designed and controlled for a greater narrative meaning. Even death is controlled and designed by God. Unbelievers say, to find this very offensive, unbelievers say, even random deaths, even children dying of malaria, even all the suffering in the world is designed by God, 
then how can you say God is good? If there are meaningless death and suffering in this world, how can you say that your God is good? To them, Job answers, were you there when God created the heavens and the earth? Do you control the home of the light? Were you there when God laid the foundations of existence? Which means, even though just because we don't understand the seemingly random things that is happening in this world, it doesn't mean that it is without meaning. Just because we don't understand it, just because we don't see the veracity of it, just because we suffer through it, it doesn't mean there isn't a greater meaning and a greater purpose. Because our God controls every single bit of it. It is this narrative that is unfolding in human history. Do you understand? What is God's purpose of history? What is God's narrative? How do we know the mind of God? Certainly, there are things about God's plan that we don't know. But God in his word revealed one of the main purposes of history. Even though we cannot fully comprehend the totality of God's meaning and narrative in this existence, God has revealed to us through his word one of his grand purpose of human design, human history. You know what that design is? You know what is one of the, more, one of the most, made, one, of the, one of the narrative, um, God's narrative that drives him in history? Paul says in today's verse, today in chapter 4 of Galatians, one of the main design of God's narrative it is, it is for slaves of sins to become adopted sons of God. One of the main purposes of God in human history is to take people who were once slaves to sin, people who were once in darkness, and adopt them as sons of God. The main purpose of human history is that our adoption as sons. Do you understand? It is more than him, like, you know, not wanting heaven without you and he coming to get you because he, he was lonely in heaven. That is just dumb. What he his purpose of history is to make people you, like you and me as his adopted sons. Ladies, he's not, Paul is not using the word sons because he is a male chauvinist and he doesn't have a high opinion of women. That's not true. The reason why he uses the word sons today is he is, he is trying to convey the meaning of inheritance. In the Jewish culture and the Roman culture, when Paul was writing this, it is the eldest son who got the inheritance. Women did not have any property rights. Right? All the property rights came down to the son. And when Paul's readers know, when Paul says sons, he means inheritance. When we are adopted sons of God, and I'm including sisters in there, when we become adopted sons of God, there is an inheritance that God gives you. 
that gives us. So one of the reasons for God's saving work, it is so that God will give you an inheritance. What is the inheritance that God will give to his sons? There are many things that, I mean, there are, there are many things that the scripture offers as our inheritance, right? What are some of the inheritance that God gives us? Number one, our inheritance. If you are an adopted son of God, your inheritance, your treasure is God is going to give you the, the God is going to give you the world and all that is in it. Right now, we think you know the world's treasures of wealth are controlled by a handful of you know rich white men, right? But even though they their claim they may monetarily possess the things of this world, ultimately. The new heaven and the new earth that God is going to establish here will belong to us. We will be heirs to all the treasures of this world. Imagine your dad is, I don't know, Jeff Bezos. How much money do you think Jeff Bezos' kids are going to get? I don't know, I think, like, I think his wife donated four, after the divorce, she's so rich, she donated $4 billion to COVID relief. Jeff Bezos' his wife, ex-wife. She had $4 billion at her disposal and just gave it away. Jeff Bezos' kids will inherit billions of dollars. But compared to what we will receive as heirs to, the, heirs to God, that billion of dollars is chicken nuggets compared to what we will get. Oh, that is real. The treasure that he will give us a new heaven and a new earth, it will become ours. Another inheritance that God gives us as his sons are glorified bodies. And that's what we're going to talk more about next week. We will have glorified bodies after our death. That glorified body is real. Just as Christ was raised with a glorified body, we too will be raised with glorified bodies. The greatest inheritance of all is God is going to give us himself access. He is our Father the sovereign king beyond time and space, the sovereign king who wrote the narrative of human history, the sovereign king who controls every bit of information in human history, the sovereign king who has no equal is our father, and we have access to him. Oh, you know? Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 17, that we will inherit everything God possesses. Every, to inherit everything that God possesses, it will be ours in the glory of heaven, and we will, we will be fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8.18 says, we will be co-heirs of Jesus Christ. Everything that God the Father gives to the Son becomes ours. Do you know? to make you sons, to give you that glorious inheritance. God writes human history. 
purpose of human history is to make us his sons. Who are we that we deserve such glory and adoption? Who are we? Who are we that we deserve everything under heaven and earth? Who are we that we deserve the same inheritance of Christ? Who are we? Weren't we people in darkness? Aren't we people who are incapable of loving God apart from his grace? Aren't we people who are slaves to sin and insane thinking? Yet to us, we're adopted as sons. How is that possible? How are people like ourselves become adopted sons of God? It is through the coming of Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time, in the time perfectly determined by God, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, the creator of all things, entered into his own creation to be amongst us. The question is why? Why couldn't God just, why couldn't just God just, you know, just be like, you know, just write a new code and just, you know, like, shouldn't, couldn't there be an easier way for God to redeem us? than his own son entering into our creation. Maybe. But this is the reason why he did it. First, Paul says, right? Paul says, the son of God was born of woman. So this means, there's a couple of implications to this. Born of woman means he was physically, he was born physically as a human being. He was born through Mary. Right? 50% of his chromosomes came from Mary, and 50% of his chromosome was divine. Can you believe that? That's what we believe in, by the way. We believe that there's a woman, there's a man, 50% of his chromosomes came from a natural woman, and 50% of his chromosomes came from, came from divine inspiration. Why did, and, and, and so that, that's what it means, that when Christ was born of woman, it means Jesus Christ was physically a human being. He wasn't some spiritual ghost. He was fully man. The reason why God, Jesus Christ was man, was to fulfill the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3. Remember Genesis chapter 3? God promises that this child, the son of a woman, will crush the head of Satan. The child of a woman has to be a, a physical human being. And that physical human being will crush Satan's and it's Satan and his plans. So Jesus Christ, born of a woman, means, number one, he was actually born a human being. And number two, he was born a human being to crush the head of Satan. 
Are we with me so far? Okay? So Jesus Christ was born of a woman. He was a fully human being. Jesus Christ, Paul also says, was born under the law. What does that mean when Jesus Christ was born under the law? It means a couple of things. Number one, Jesus Christ, the physical, the man, the God-man Jesus, was born as a Jew. Right? His parents were Jewish people. And the Jewish nation, if you, are, if you are part of the Jewish nation, that you are, under, you are governed by God's law revealed in the Old Testament. Right? So just because Jesus was born a human, the God-man Jesus was born a Jew, and every Jew was under God's law, which means every Jew was expected to obey God's law. That's what it means. But another implication, the wider implication is, Jesus Christ was born under the law means not only is he subject to God's Mosaic law, but he's subject to the law of God that, that, exist in, that exist in the world. Let me give you an example. God made everything in it according to his righteousness, which means God created everything through his righteous standards. God creating everything through his righteous standard means the law of God governs every part of this world. Every human being, not only the Jews, every human being are under God's law because God created the universe according to his righteous standard and his righteous standard is law. So if you are a human being, you are under God's law. Do you understand? Jewish people were under God's law because God revealed his Mosaic covenant to them. But every human being is also under, uh, under God's law because God created the world according to his righteousness. So if you are a human being, you are under God's law because you're living in God's world. Do you understand? God's law is not something to, be, to hate. It's not something to recoil. It is a perfect, perfect and beautiful. In Psalm, where, where is that Psalm? Ba, 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 ba. Ah. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The law of God is not something to be dread. The law of God is God's perfect standard. If you obey it, you will have life. Run away from it, you will have destruction. Are we with me so far? So Jesus Christ, so these two verses, he was born a man, he was born of a woman, and he was under the law. Paul is basically saying, Jesus Christ was like us. We're physically human, and, every, like, and like every human being is under God's law, so was Christ. He was exactly like us. Okay, are you with me? The question is, why did he need to be exactly like us? What's the purpose of the incarnation? Why did he doesn't need to be exactly like us? He needed to be exactly like us to redeem us. What is the definition of redemption? It is to buy back. It is to buy us back. It is to pay the penalty of our sins and fulfill the requirements that we were unable to fulfill on our own. In order for us to redeem, to be redeemed, to be acceptable by God, 
in order to be God's sons, number one, we need to fulfill his requirements, which is to obey God's law. And number two, someone needs to pay the penalty for our sins. And to be perfectly realized that Jesus Christ has to be made like us. This is, I know this is getting complicated. Are you with me so far? Yeah, Sean? Okay, Sean's, Sean's the parameter. To, to redeem us, we will need to fulfill God's requirement, right? Because God is a God of law. And number two, someone needs to pay for the penalties for our sins. That's how redemption works. And only a God-man, Christ, can do this for us. Let's talk about the first one. To redeem us, Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived. God is a God of law. He created things in his righteous standard. And everything that is not according to his standard is sin and it is an offense and it deserves wrath. Human beings are designed to live in accordance to God's law. But let's be honest. You and I do not live in accordance to God's law. We find it offensive, restrictive, we want to do our own thing. Even though we want to do God's law, we want to obey God's law, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, we want, there's a part of him that really wants to obey God's law because he knows God's law is perfect. But there's a spirit that works in him where he doesn't want to do what is right and he wants to do what is wrong. Even though intellectually he understands God's law is perfect, there's a spirit in him. There's a spirit of disobedience in him. And that is a spirit that lives within you and me too. Weddings. I do a lot of weddings. You guys get married a lot, right? Not like multiple times, but a lot of people get married. I do a lot of weddings. And every wedding is the same shtick. Not shtick. It's the same type of, I varied it up, but it's basically the same message. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Submit to your husband as, as the church submits to Christ. And during wedding counseling, I do a long wedding counseling session, and they all agree with me that that's how they should live. But after the ceremony, and I go, do it. Go live. People do not live accordance to their vows. We study what is required of being married. We make vows in weddings. We all agree that the vows and the things that we learn are good ideas. But when you're actually married, there's a spirit at work in you that do not want to conform to God's will. Do you understand? You may stay here and agree with everything that I just said right now. But when you go home, there is another spirit that is at work in you. A spirit of disobedience. Let's be honest. For God to accept us as his son, we need to be obedient to his law. But there's a spirit in us that, do not want, that don't want to do it. 
how are we to become adopted sons if there's a spirit of disobedience in us? We need a champion who would perfectly obey God's law on our behalf. Um, there's a movie called The King in Netflix, right? It's like a three-hour movie, so I just watched the beginning part of it, a little bit of the middle part of it at the end. That's what I do. All my network, network, Netflix movies, I can watch it in 15 minutes. I watch the beginning, the middle, and the end. I don't do anything in the middle, right? One of the battle scenes that I, you know, that the king is about the king, of Eng, the, the king of England going to war with the prince of France, right? And Timothy Chalamet is the prince of England, king of England, and Robert Pattinson, Batman, is the king of France, the prince of France. And they are in the middle of a battlefield, about to go to war. Two mighty nations going to war. Timothy Chalamet said, with his cool hair, he says, rather than subjecting our armies to, you know, to, to bloody death, why don't you and me battle it out? Whoever wins, whoever stands, is the victor today. Right? And all the armies can go home. The losing army can go home. He's suggesting that the king of England and the prince of France become champions for their army. If the king of France wins, his victory becomes the victory of England. That's analogous to what Christ is doing. You and I cannot perfectly obey God's law. You know you can't. You know you recognize the spirit of disobedience in you and me. But to fulfill God's perfect requirement, we need a champion. It is the man Jesus who perfectly obeyed God's law on our behalf. Do you understand? And he needed to be a man. God requires a man to obey his requirement. That's why Christ needed to be a man. Because as the man God obeys the law of God perfectly, when we are united with him, his obedience becomes our obedience. If Jesus Christ just obeyed God's law, but being in God form, that doesn't, he can't be our champion because we're men and women. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to say? To, for a human being to perfectly obey God's law, Jesus Christ had to be a human being. And because he did, he is our champion. His obedience becomes our obedience. That's why Christ needed to be a man. Why did Christ need to be a man? He also needed to be a man to pay for our sins. Look, when you disobey God, when you and I disobey God, there are real life consequences to our disobedience. Like I was, coming, I was listening to CNN on my way here. And the, the, the basically, like, you know, we, they were talking about vaccines. But he's saying, even though you're vaccinated and all that stuff, right, it's, it'll be difficult to curb the pandemic, the incidence of occurrence of pandemic, 
if people still just go out and just hang out. They're saying the reason, major reason that, the, that this pandemic is spreading is because people are not disciplined, quarantining themselves at home. Even though they know they should quarantine, people just don't do it. And because they don't do it, there is a real-life consequence. There's, people are physically dying because people are not obe- obeying what they, what they know what they ought to do. There is a price for our disobedience. God says, do not commit murder physically or in the mind. But we, com- we, don't, we may not commit murder physically, but we commit murder with our minds and our tongues all the time. And trust me when I say, I, I, I experience damaged people who've experienced unkind, condemning words in their lives. There's a real-life toll when we, are, when we use unkind words to each other. God said, do not lust, but people do it all the time. There's a real-life consequence to our lust. There's a real-life consequence of thinking that, I have kids here, that, um, that, what's the word, that those kind of activities, thinking lightly of those type of activities, leads to millions of babies being aborted, Leads to people being violated. Leads to the dehumanization of women. God says, don't lust. We say no. And as a result, murders, violations, crime. There's a real life toll to our disobedience. God says, do not bear false witnesses. Politicians lie all the time. And we pay the price for it. What time is it? Holy man, almost done. There's a real life price to our disobedience. Who will pay the price for our disobedience? There's, we have blood in our hands. You may not see it, but trust me when I say your disobedience and my disobedience causes blood. Who will pay the price for our disobedience? It is the man Jesus on the cross. That's who. It is only the man God in his death can wash away our sin. Look, in the Old Testament, God tells Israel to offer up sacrifices, sin offerings, right? They kill rams, they kill bulls. They kill lambs and they lift as a sin offering, right? And they, and they slaughter it. When they sin, they slaughter those animals as a, as, a, as a substitution for their sins. But did you know the animals that they killed was not enough to cover their sins eternally? Even though God commanded Israel to slaughter all these animals when they sin. These animal sacrifices were not enough to forever cover the the sins of God's people. Why? Because the animals are not human beings. They're of different kind. They're substitutes 
they're representative. They're not, they're not really a human being. They're not like in substance as us. That is why their sacrifices don't mean much. It's not, the power isn't, there isn't enough power for that sacrifice to cover our sins. It is a human being, the man Christ, up on the cross, fully man, fully God, who was like us. And, the, and as the man Christ experienced the wrath of God, when we believe in him, what that man God did on the cross becomes, our, becomes the penalty for our sins. Do you understand why he needed to be man? He needed to be man because, he, he, because in order for us to be forgiven, he needed to be like us. Let's go back. Christmas, God sent his son to adopt us. That's the reason for the incarnation. And when we confess that this, that the man, God, man, Jesus, obeyed the thing, lived the life that I, that, that I should have lived and died the death that I should have died, when we know that he did all these things for us, when we believe and trust in that, God says, you are adopted sons of God. The only reason that we can be adopted sons of God is because Christ became our champion in obedience, and the man God became the penalty for our sins. And when we are united with him, we are adopted sons of God. That's why Christ needed to be human beings. Paul, in verse 5, verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts. What Paul means is, is, is this. What I just said about what Jesus did. To the outside world, it is preposterous, stupid, and foolish. We believe that there's a God and he was flesh. We believe that there is a God and that God became a form of a carpenter who lived in a small town in Galilee 2,000 years ago. And that guy dying on a cross will save, him, save our sins? That is utterly ridiculous. I am just amazed by, I meet Christians and they say, and though some Christians believe, we can choose God for ourselves. Really? You can make yourself believe that God came in human form and his death, because of his death, that you are forgiven and that you are forgiven, like, like eternity belongs to you? It's impossible. How can you choose God for yourself? It is the Holy Spirit that comes and testifies that this is what Jesus did. And when he testifies that this is what Jesus has done for you, you cry out to God, Abba which means God has become your daddy. The only way that you will become adopted sons of God is for the Holy Spirit to testify about Jesus Christ in you. The question I ask you, my young friends, is the Holy Spirit testifying to you what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you? 
is the Holy Spirit convincing you that what I just said in the last 45 minutes, it's true? If you believe it, that you know the love of God and you're adopted sons of God. If you don't, then you are still outside of his, of his mercy right now. I meet unbelievers, and even unbelievers say that they believe in God, they, that, they, that they believe God loves them. I don't really know what they mean when they say God loves them. I meet people all the time, they tell me God loves them, and I have no idea what they mean by that. The only way that you truly know God loves you and that God is your Father is for the Holy Spirit to testify about the incarnate Son of God obeying God's requirement for you and dying for your sins. When that truth is the basis of your understanding of God, then you are a Son of God. If not, you are, but if your understanding of God's love is this vague notion that God is somehow kind to you, then I don't know whether you truly know the love of God or not. It is our prayer in this Christmas season that God will adopt you as his sons or remind all of us who are forgotten that you are beloved sons of God and remind you of the eternal benefits that are waiting for you. Let us pray for these things. Father, we are sons of God. We are inherit we are heirs to an eternal kingdom. Our lives are not just what we earn or gain or experience in this world, which is temporary and failing and falling away. But Lord, our eternal destiny, our eternal reward, our eternal treasure is tied to your kingdom. And we, we are heirs to your kingdom. And the only way that we become heirs to your kingdom is because you have sent your son to be an incarnate human being. And that incarnate son of God lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And because of his work, we are rich and blessed beyond all measure. Oftentimes, Lord, we measure our blessing based upon what we gain in this world. We believe, Lord, that you know, if we have a good job or if we realize what we want in this world, that that means we are blessed. No, Lord, that, what we have or not have is not the basis of our blessing. The basis of our blessing is what lies ahead of us in Christ. It is our prayer that you remind all of us what lies ahead of us. It is our prayer that you remind us, Lord, that you are in our, our, our eternal inheritance. May we pray, may the Holy Spirit come into our hearts and testify that you are our Father. May your Holy Spirit come into our lives and testify, Lord, of, of, of our champion, Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit testify, Lord, of, 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 of our position as sons of God.
And may this testimony of the Holy Spirit give us joy and gratitude and a sense of expectation for the next life. We pray for those of us who do not know what Christ has done. For those of us, Lord, who are still outside of your mercy and grace because we are still ignorant of Jesus Christ, we pray that you will give them the ability to, that, that you will save them, that your Holy Spirit will testify Jesus Christ in them so that they too will become adopted sons of God. We pray, dear God, that you will encourage those of us going through many difficulties. Encourage them by reminding them of their eternal position. Remind them, Lord, one of the benefits of being saved is that you are at their access. May they continue to access you in the, in the moment of their, in, in, in their suffering. We pray, dear God, that may, may all their, may they suffer well, and may they suffer well by, remind, by remembering their position in you in Christ. We pray for such blessing in our church. All these things, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Announcements.